You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, teaching yourself and your registrar about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, myths, tips and a new guide. Our guests are Dr Tim Senior and Dr Keith Gleeson. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this recording is taking place and pay respect to their elders, past, present and their families. My name is Margot and I work for General Practice Supervisors Australia. This is very important and very dear to my heart and many people's hearts. The guide, myself and the two presenters have been involved in putting together in our own different ways. I've been much more administrative, but I'm very pleased that it's seen the light of day. And tonight we are going to look through the guide and talk about some information that we deeply hope is of great use to anyone who is listening. I'd like to introduce our presenters. Both of them worked on the guide. Firstly, I'd like to welcome Keith Gleeson. Keith is a Birupai and Dane Guddy man from northern New South Wales. He currently works as the senior medical officer in Walgate at the AMS. Keith's been a prolific leader in Indigenous health and he's currently an advisory board member of AIDA and he's also an advisory board member of Healthy Males Andrology Australia. He was the chair of IGPRN, the Indigenous GP Registrars Network, and that's when I had the pleasure of meeting him myself. The other presenter tonight is the fabulous Tim Senior, who many of you will probably also already know. Tim is a long-standing GP Synergy Supervisor at Tharawal Aboriginal Medical Service in Campbelltown, Sydney, or nearby there. He has a long history as an outstanding teacher and mentor, and he's also a recognised expert in the delivery of Indigenous healthcare, and he's a really passionate advocate of general practice. Welcome to you, gentlemen, and thank you very much for giving up your time tonight. We're hoping that at the end of this, you will understand the challenges and opportunities associated with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's health and your general practice. Hopefully you'll understand how to use the guide. The guide has been sent to all the training practices in Australia. At this fabulous point, I'm going to pass over to Tim and Keith. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've just done an acknowledgement of country. It might be worth saying a little bit about the importance of that and what people like myself can do in acknowledging country and what a welcome to country is. And the difference in the two, welcome to country versus acknowledgement. Yeah, so acknowledgement is for people who are not traditionally from country. So if somebody's on another country like myself at the moment, I'm on Norway country, so I'm not a Norway person. So it would be very offensive for me to welcome people to country. This is not my land. So I would actually acknowledge that I'm on country as opposed to welcome country. So welcomes are usually done from the traditional people, usually an elder in that location or somebody who's nominated by the community, particularly for, you know, you might see them at RACGP, they'll be invited guests in that location. So yeah, so that's the difference. Acknowledgement is basically individuals that are on land just to basically acknowledge the traditional elders and that they were the traditional people from that land and still are basically. You know, we haven't conceded and given up our land and we're really strong about that and certainly happy to work with the non-Indigenous community and all we're asking is equal opportunities to be involved in all aspects of social fabric of Australian society and we still haven't got that equity at this point. We are working towards that direction and I think everything's been very positive to this day. But that's the differences. And the way I think of it is if um, if you come round to my house for tea, I'll welcome you to my house and you'll acknowledge that you're in my house. I might look at you very strangely if you come round to my house and welcome me to my own house. And I might think you're very strange if you come into my house 
and go and delve into the biscuit cupboards and rearrange where I've got all my plates and bowls and move the piano to another room. And I'll go, what's going on here? This is my house. And you'd be going, oh no, it's mine now. I've been here. And so it's simple etiquette really about the fact that the picture you've got on screen, that so the word Australia as a country, I mean, Australia as a country has only been around since 1901. And the word Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander only comes about because Europeans arrived here. And so we heard, Keith, you introduced yourself as a Birupai and... A Dangati country, yep. That's right, and Birupai and Dangati. And it's, you'll see all the Aboriginal people you meet will describe the country that they come from. And so it's always worth getting to know what the country you're on. As you can tell from my accent, I'm English. This map reminds me of like a map of Europe, all the different countries there. Or it might remind you of a map of Asia. And so sometimes talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health is like talking about European health or Asian health. And you mean Icelandic health and German health and Spanish health and Swedish health and Turkish health. And it starts to become not meaningless. And so you can see in a similar thing, there's Aboriginal Australia, let alone Torres Strait Islander, which is completely separate up off the far north tip of Queensland. Aboriginal Australia is so diverse and there's no particular reason why myself on Farrell land why that would be the same culture as Central Desert Australia or in the tropical Northwest Kimberleys. So it's such a beautifully diverse country, a set of countries, and seeing all those names come through from where you are has actually been really lovely. So those are the countries that we're acknowledging. Yeah, and we do have a very strict culture and not that it's seen regularly. As an Aboriginal collective group, if we venture into somebody else's communities, we actually ensure that we follow their protocols and we respect their land as an Aboriginal group. So not everybody sees that, but it does occur and it's very well enforced, I can tell you that. Some of the statistics that we're going to present as a way of telling a story about the patients and the teaching that we're doing. One of the things that strikes me, I think, is that many GP supervisors, I suspect, don't feel that confident in learning Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. And very often, the people who come through as registrars or other learners, they'll have learnt quite a bit at university and they'll have learnt some during their GP training program. And that may be more than some supervisors have learnt. And so it's actually an opportunity not to do teaching as a I have the facts, I'm going to teach you this, but as an opportunity to role model learning together. So if the registrar has learned a bit more than you, it's an opportunity to say, okay, this is how we learn as a GP. Teach me about it. What can we learn together? How do we put this into practice in our own practice? And so there's sort of statistics that we're going to look at and tell a story with. That's really the background about how we're going to learn that together. You don't need to know everything to teach this really. Even in major cities, the majority of Aboriginal people that you come across recognise a homeland or traditional country. So all of those countries that we've been seeing, doesn't matter where you are in Australia, especially true in very remote countries, but even in an urban Aboriginal medical service where I am, even in Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that you are seeing, they may not be on their country, but they will recognise a traditional country. And people are very connected to culture, even as, as Keith says, you may not see that on the surface. Office, but that will be true of your patients. And you'd agree with that, Keith, yeah? Yes, absolutely. Why teach Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health? Essentially, you can boil it down to two reasons. One is that it's going to be in the exam for your registrars, so they want to learn it. And two, it's an absolute priority in Australian health. It's a group with the highest need and worst health outcomes currently. And GPs play a primary role in doing that. We all know that GPs are essential for improving the health of people. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health is no different. So we need to do that well. So the other questions will cover off some of those as we go through. 
as I was saying earlier, I think the role of the GP supervisor depends on what your experience is. Some of you may well have extensive experience. I know there's some in the audience here who are Aboriginal themselves. And obviously, I think as I come at this as a non-Indigenous person, and I'm not able to teach Aboriginal culture and a lot of aspects of Aboriginal health, that's where the things that I talk about are about how we learn from Aboriginal people themselves. And if there's going to be a one particular theme that we go through consistently tonight, it's how are we going to learn from the Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people if we're in North Queensland in our local area? How are we going to learn from them about what the needs of the local community are? And that's going to be the role of the GP supervisor, I think, to find out how we can make those connections and join up what registrars may have been learning in workshops and university, how that can work in practice, in your practice, what that looks like on the ground. So the RTOs all have to do workshops for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and GP registrars. My observation, I'd be interested in seeing if you agree, Keith, or if people in the audience agree, GP registrars are very interested in this. The latest medical outcomes database surveying medical students coming out, the large proportion of medical graduates are interested in working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health as part of their future role. There's a lot of interest out there in doctors coming through. Is that something you've noticed as well, Keith? Yes, mate, yeah. Yeah. And I think what GP registrars should learn, that there is, both colleges have an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health curriculum, and both colleges have an advanced rural skills training post or equivalent for working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. So those curriculums are worth getting to know. You won't be expected to teach all of that, but it's worthwhile looking through those and seeing which bits would be particularly useful in practice. So for example, you wouldn't be expected to teach about culture, but you might be expected to teach about cross-cultural consulting. If you don't know about culture, what are the assumptions that you can avoid making about patients and how that gets translated into our consultation into the clinical context. And the guide does include a practice culture inclusion checklist. And I think one of the important things to be aware of, we always talk about culture as if it's someone else's culture. But the first step in learning about culture is our own cultures, including our own professional culture. And all of our practices aren't neutral. They have a culture themselves, which can actually encourage or discourage people from presenting to our practices. So once we acknowledge that, we can see some of the reasons that people come and don't come and what makes them comfortable. The other thing that's important about seeing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients is that it's not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health that is learnt as part of that. They're often the opportunity for registrars to see patients with chronic disease and to see patients with multiple chronic disease reported by PHN. For Indigenous patients, a fifth in metro areas have three or more chronic diseases and getting up to almost a third in some areas. So this is an opportunity for a registrar to take on a patient and manage someone with multiple complexities. And if they can do that, then they can do good medicine. And that's something that can be learnt in your practice. We know that registrars often get less opportunity to do that than us as supervisors. And so being quite intentional about making that happen can be really important. The difference in Indigenous and non-Indigenous patients with comorbidity, just three, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. So this doesn't even include mental health or other conditions. But you can see multimorbidity comes in at a much younger age for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So that's 45 to 64 years. We're seeing a significant amount of multimorbidity. So you can imagine the effect that that has on people's ability to work, earn an income, look after family. But also, who's the specialists who look after multimorbidity? It's us. 
the GP's specialty is multimorbidity and there's sometimes pediatricians are good at it, care of the elderly is good at it. There's still a few general physicians, but we tend to be the general physicians in the community. And so there's a real opportunity there to teach about how we do multimorbidity well. There's lots of money spent on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. This is a common myth. Keith, you're rolling in money, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The per person health expenditure in Australia from the health performance framework, they report this every two years, but it takes some time to gather these data. So they're a little bit old now, but I suspect it's not changed a great deal. Lots more money spent in public hospital services on Indigenous patients. The vast majority of that is taken up by renal dialysis. But you see where we're working in the sort of the medical services area, it's much less. You'd expect it to be more given the need of patients and also that Medicare is available to everyone. But actually that doesn't happen. Uh, So across Australia, and actually there's less spent per person on Indigenous Australians compared to non-Indigenous just on PBS. It's a bit more equal in major cities, but MBS, Medicare is available to every Australian. And yet we spend slightly less on a community who actually have higher need. And that's the same for the PBS. Now, again, this may have changed slightly since then, because this is just before the PBS co-payment came in, the closing gap co-payment, specifically designed to adjust this. And so there may have been a bit of an equalisation. But again, the PBS is available to every Australian, but cost has been a significant reason that people don't take medication. Those two stats mean there's an easy win in teaching Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health in your practice, and that's knowing the MBS and PBS specific items for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients. So things like the 715 Health Check and what that entitles you to, things like the Indigenous Health Practice Incentive Payment, things like the CTG PBS co-payment and medications that are available particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Yes, good question. Those are per head, those costings. Is there anything you'd comment on those, keys? No, no, just modern registrars are well aware of what those payments are for and why they're done. So 715 is very, very important as a tool to pick up, obviously, with chronic disease. most Aboriginal, as you said. Tim has multiple chronic diseases. It's about a team approach. And so doing those care plans is about involving a team approach effort to try and assist the GPs in getting the best outcome for the individuals. And so they're very, very important. One of the things that I would like to emphasise here when you do 715 is you can do them poorly or you can do them really good. And I would encourage that anyone who does a 715 that they actually put some effort and time into doing them. It's not just about a bill. It's also important to actually identify things that you may need to do in the future for this individual. So take a bit of time to do them. They're important. So that's the reason why we have them. That's a really important point about doing them well. I don't know a single GP who wants to do a rubbish job, but sometimes the incentives in terms of our workloads and capacity can push us in that direction. This again is from the health performance framework, and it's just a reminder that the areas that we tend to concentrate on our comfort zones in general practice are what might be called behavioral risk factors or lifestyle factors such as smoking, alcohol, physical activity, all the snaps. So it's important, but it's not the whole story. Social determinants, and we'll talk a bit about those shortly, and I'm pleased that someone's already talking about those in the comments. And then gap due to other factors is a very big block, and other factors sort of leaves us guessing as to what those other factors might include, and it's a bit unexplained, but some of it will be access to care, some of it maybe sort of cost of care, things like that, but it's a big black box that's responsible for a good degree of the gap. One of my heroes is Michael Marmot, and he was the first person who demonstrated the social gradient in health. 
And we see that in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health definitely too. For example, smoking. Now, we all know smoking is bad. We're all GPs. We're excellent at being able to help find ways of helping people quit and teaching our registrars to help people quit as well. But we can also see that those in the most advantaged group are more likely to be non-smokers than those who are the most disadvantaged. Same, those who completed year 12 are more likely to be non-smokers than those who are year 10 or below. Those with the highest income are more likely to be non-smokers than those with the lowest. And those who are employed are more likely to be non-smokers than those who are unemployed. And again, it just tells us to remember to go back and look at the causes of the causes. And I don't think that would surprise any of us. And this is income. And so divides up the spread of income into five groups and can be a really useful example to compare our own incomes with those of our patients. And so we see that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are much overrepresented in that lower income compared to their highest income. It's not zero. There are still people in those high income groups, but it's not spread evenly. And you imagine $435 or less that was in 2014-15 per week. And the impact that that has on able to afford food, able to afford medications, if they're not on the CTG PBS, able to afford specialist care, co-payments for medical care. And so people will choose to put food on the table for their children and go without themselves when that money is a struggle. So again, the reason that this is important is when we're seeing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients or any other patients, it's quite easy just to assume that the life is a bit like ours, only maybe slightly different and maybe culturally different. But actually, the background is enormously different to us. And I'm aware that most doctors come from backgrounds where we've been in those higher income areas. And so we actually don't know what it's like to live very often, except as a student, on those really low incomes. But that has a profound impact on the way that people live. And again, as GPs, what that means for us is that core skill that we have of just getting to know our patients well enough to understand the context that they're living in. You know, I'd just like to add on that one. We come from a we culture, and there's probably some people on tonight that would understand this. Um, we culture as opposed to an I culture, which is what I would call non-Indigenous. We culture is we share our wealth amongst the family and stuff like that. So we have extended families. So we have low income. Like Tim said, we'll feed our kids first or we'll feed other family members that are in need. So again, this is not obviously seen throughout the general community. So we actually share our wealth. And this is one of the reasons why we have survived over time you know, with all the things that are thrown at us because we are a we culture. We try to look after us. And you often hear, oh, you people. Well, it's you, you people is what has made us survive and been able to survive through some very horrible times in the last 200 years because of that. When you see these figures, it's actually we're sharing our wealth to the poorest within the community as well, the housing and all that sort of stuff. Overcrowding is because we actually look after our own. And it's a, it's a really important point because we, we hear people say sometimes, oh, yeah, well, they just don't care about their own health. Well, it's clearly not true. If we put the we culture onto that, that's actually completely untrue. And I often think if we make any comment like that in interpreting what we're observing, asking ourselves, how would an Aboriginal person react if they heard me saying that? And very often, again, going and hearing what people themselves would tell us. A we culture, beautifully put, Keith, I like that. A reminder that many of our patients will be survivors of the stolen generation. 
We may not know that and patients may not be comfortable telling us that. And some will be descendants of survivors of the stolen generation. The Healing Foundation did a fantastic report with AIHW showing again the extra disadvantage that that puts on. So again, that's for us to be really aware of. And the Healing Foundation actually do some really good resources about working with people from the stolen generation. And it's where I'll just mention the word trauma-informed care because the trauma that people have gone through impacts the way they behave, particularly in relation to authoritative non-Indigenous bodies like the medical profession. And we were involved in removing children. I often think many of the patients who come to see us have a grandma sat on their shoulder whispering in their ear saying, they stole my children. You know that, they stole my children. Are you sure you can trust them? And so it's up to us to be aware of that history and make sure that we're demonstrating that we can be trusted, unlike other experiences that they've had. And Tim, I'd like to share a story. I know of a Beripai elder who actually was stolen, and she's actually substantially traumatised that it's actually hard for an Aboriginal doctor to even gauge her in that. And what was quite stark is the fact that she's actually got footage of her being stolen on the ABC have actually been taken. So she watches that regularly and the trauma that goes on with that. And this is just one of many, many tragic stories that are around. And unfortunately, when you're stolen from your parents and that then starts that generational thing that's really, really hard to change and correct. And it's going to take a long time for that to be repaired. If you Google Healing Foundation, A-I-H-W, it'll take you to the report. They've done two now. I think one's about children as well. There's a link to it in the guide. There's a lot of information there now. The Healing Foundation also does have a series of fact sheets specifically for GPs about working with members of the stolen generations. Those are great learning resources to go through together with a registrar because chances are none of us are particularly familiar with that and we can learn that. Got a note as well, they were stolen as well as abused in these institutions and that's a really important point too. Housing. Proportion of Indigenous households living in houses of an acceptable standard. So that's where everything works in the house. You've got electricity that works, you've got running water, you've got hot water, you've got doors that close, windows that close. The NT figures are worse, but there's about 20% across the board in Australia where people don't have a house that works fully. And then overcrowding, the rates are higher. So you can imagine what that means, particularly during COVID times with overcrowding, what it means for things like chronic separative otitis media, but also what it means for mental health in having a space of your own just to retreat when things get stressful or just to be able to relax a bit. That's very difficult in those circumstances. So again, this is just about understanding the context that our patients come from so that the care that we're able to provide is appropriate for them. Because if they've not got a fridge that's working, then we can give all the advice about healthy eating that we want, but it's not going to work if they can't afford the food, don't have cooking facilities to cook it or fridge to store fresh food in or insulin in. Just want to add to that, Tim, one of the reasons why the Northern Territory figures and probably some parts of Queensland is the cost of building houses is quite expensive. It's quite expensive for governments. It's also expensive to have food transported, so goods and services. So there's already an impediment in place for many of these people and then the infrastructure to set up there, like clean drinking water and stuff like that and maintaining that as well is also very costly. And that's one of the things that interplay with the disproportionate costs for these people because they'll obviously live where they are because that's their land, you know, and not going to move and rightly so it's their place but they shouldn't be living in very third world conditions you know it's a matter of asking what they want you know what is it they need and in going from there and having a conversation with them uh, how best they can get the best out of their circumstances in the locations they are but i don't know whether governments often do that 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a really important point there that these are general statistics that give the average and the spread. But for individual patients, you'll need a conversation to see which of those apply to that particular patient. And the patient will often be the best guide around their culture and their own circumstances. So they'll be a partner in that. And again, that's a core GP skill. Access affordability of internet, it's a really mm. important point. So much of what people need to do now is moving online, engage with Centrelink, job applications, education. It's a really important point. I've seen a patient this week who had a SIM card but no phone. People regularly run out of data. Quite a few of my patients don't have smartphones. Sometimes people might have internet access at home. Sometimes people's internet access is at the library. And you can think about the privacy issues relating to that. I don't have stats in this, but there have been publications about the digital divide, and it's really important. What's internet like in Walgut, Keith? Oh, look, the internet is atrocious out here. And again, I'll re-emphasise what you're saying, Tim. For example, the COVID app is great in principle, but in terms of the Aboriginal population, a lot of us don't have that technology. And if you're in some of these remote areas, it's non-feasible. So in terms of having an instrument that protects you, the best protection is basically isolation. And that's why we've isolated some of these communities because of the lack of technology to help protect them as well. So just to give you that heads up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's an important comment here about that's also the circumstances for an Aboriginal medical student that one of our audience is teaching at the moment. And so many of you will come across Aboriginal medical students and Aboriginal GP registrars in training. And those issues will often be or have been issues for registrars going through. And so being aware of that, I think. Yeah. And the other thing, the really important thing in terms of the technology and access is that a lot of Aboriginal people lose their phones regularly. They don't update their phone context. And I often get a lot of reports from specialists saying oh, I failed to attend their appointments and they get struck off so they might be booked in for surgery for example they've been contacted three times by the surgery to organize their procedure but unfortunately been struck off because they couldn't get in contact and fortunately they miss out and so one of the reasons why that happens is because of the lack of phones and access to the resources to contact them because not everybody has that access yeah and that point about people being excluded from services for not answering the phone there's a significant number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait people avoid healthcare for various reasons. And cost is a significant one, and particularly for dentists, other health professionals, but also for doctors. Logistical reasons, that'd be like transport, where many people don't have transport. And Aboriginal medical services often provide transport to get people to care. Personal reasons, probably a lot of that will be bad personal experiences going to health services. But some of that will include cultural appropriateness of service. A fantastic cue for us to talk about that because it goes to the point that our own practices are cultural institutions and that often the cultural clash, there's a different expectation perhaps or pressures about the length of consultation that's required. And you can imagine that from the point of view of just simply the medical multimorbidity that we're seeing, let alone the importance of developing a relationship. Whereas the pressure on us of actually running a practice and paying all our staff puts pressure on to see people through quickly. What comments would you give for GP supervisors, Keith, about cultural appropriateness of medical services? Trying to make it a safe, it starts with language. It starts with making the place not so hostile. And I'll give you an example. Emergency departments have big white plastic screens. You walk into an emergency department, there's a big screen in front of you, and it might have a sign there. And the person says, oh, I'll go to the next window, you know, and Aboriginal people, not all Aboriginal people, read. So they go to this window, then they're aggressively attacked by that individual. They'll either turn around and walk out the door, knowing that they're quite sick because they couldn't read, and they feel there's a barrier in front of them. So there's a sense of perception when they walk in the door. Unfortunately, this perception is part of the culture because of what's happening in the past where people have gone to hospitals 
you're really sick and injured and actually have had kids stolen. That's where all this mistrust with medical workforce started was don't take your kids to the hospital, learn what you you won't leave. So pass on generation to generation. We just can't trust you anymore because if you can't trust your kids with these institutions, then why can we trust you at all? And it's really hard to change that mentality over time. I mean, given that stolen generation, it's not long ago. You're only talking about 20 to 30 years ago, so it's not that long. So it's going to take a bit of time. In terms of culture, is also your body language, your approach. And I don't think it's just reflective to Aboriginal people. I think we should approach this to all people. You should be treated the way you want to be treated. And I think that's the starting point. And have a conversation. You know, Aboriginal people like people to ask questions and they actually like to engage. You know, they like to joke. Ask them about the sports. I think that some icebreaker is always a good for any patient that you walk in. And I think we're easy to have prejudgments and I'm probably just as guilty as anybody else. If somebody walks in there can have this prejudice that can get in the road. So yeah, we can just think about that and approach initially. A very human thing to prejudge and we actually can't stop ourselves from doing it, but we can be aware that we're doing it and challenge ourselves for that. I've experienced where a patient wouldn't go in the ambulance because they believe when an Aboriginal patient goes to hospital, they don't return, fear of death in hospital. That's very real and often with good cause as well. In conjunction with culturally appropriate long consult, will Medicare intervene or audit if too many level C consults? Ah, it's a scary question. They might audit if your ratio is vastly different to everyone else's. That's Medicare problems. If you can justify doing a level C for all your patients, then the audit will be in your favor. So document really well. They take this population-based approach, but actually Medicare is around seeing individual patients one after another. But if you're audited, then that's really stressful. So just a reminder that stolen generations have worse access to service. Also in answer to that, from the health performance framework, attempts to measure cultural safety in community-controlled health services. But I think it's also useful for mainstream practices just in the domains that they look at. Because us non-Indigenous people often think of cultural safety as purely being a knowledge gap that some training for individual staff will fix. But actually, it's much more than that. The cultural competence are part of staff performance appraisal training and cultural orientation for non-Indigenous staff. Knowledge gap the importance of employing local Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So that may be something that practices can look at doing. The way we engage patients in having some influence over the service is important for cultural safety. The governance and organisational policies and procedures are important in terms of what people do and the way the, the practices run contribute to that. Mechanisms for gaining high-level advice on cultural matters affecting service delivery. So like advice from local elders about what's going to be important, even getting a walkthrough from a local elder to do. Now, sometimes if registrars have to do a project, I've seen an example where a registrar's had real influence in changing mainstream practice to make it more acceptable to the local Indigenous community. And it's the sort of thing sometimes they're really good at getting their teeth stuck into. And then formal cultural safety policies developed in consultation with communities and staff. And the consultation is really important there. Really important bit of research in Mount Isa, they asked what are the ways of breaking down cultural barriers and they asked Indigenous and non-Indigenous staff. Non-Indigenous people said, oh, it's the policies and procedures, it's the paintings on the wall, it's the posters we have, it's the pamphlets we give out. And Aboriginal people said, yeah, that's all important, but those mean nothing if we haven't got a relationship with someone in the service. And so aside from all of that, if we're ourselves role modeling and working with our registrars to develop relationships with our patients and being quite intentional about that, as professionals, we should be able to develop a relationship with everyone who walks through our door. It's easy with the people we like, but with the patients who are difficult to engage, we should have the skills to do that.
We probably can't with quite everyone, but we should have a way of attempting to do that with absolutely everyone who walks through the door. And if we can do that, which is a core GP skill for us, then we're on the way to increasing cultural appropriateness of our practice. A reminder of the importance of stolen generations. I don't want to dwell on that because it's just that we know that that's important. We often talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health as if it's one thing. But one of the things that we are, if anything, as GPs is embedded in our local community. The local Aboriginal community that we're in will have local history and local stories that we may not know unless we go out and seek it. So I think there's ways of engaging with the local community. For example, this week, they may well have had Reconciliation Week events on. So finding out about those. NAIDOC week. Often that date gets changed, celebrated at a different time of year in more inland parts of Australia because it's so cold. But finding out what events are on in NAIDOC week can be really important. The other aspect of local history which is commemorated is just about everywhere has a massacre. Where I am, there was the Appin massacre where Governor Macquarie, who for some reason is still celebrated, ordered the killing of local Aboriginal people and his soldiers went and pushed them, including women and children, over the edge of the cliff at Appin. And every year, 27th of April, that's commemorated with an increasingly large commemoration at the site where it happened. Now, where you are, there will be stories like that, and they're often commemorated, and they'll be told among the Aboriginal people in your area. So getting to know those local history stories, the local history events, being seen at those can just go a long way to going, oh, here's a GP who's in a practice who are really interested in doing this and being embedded in the local community. Again, because that's what GPs are good at doing. Yeah, I'd like to add, Tim, there's also a lot of Aboriginal radio stations now. There's NITV now that broadcasts a lot of Aboriginal content. These are a really good source of information about really breaking down the barriers about culture. And I would encourage anybody to actually approach an Aboriginal person and just start a conversation, have a conversation and just say, I'd like to know a bit about the land. I'm really interested and you know, I want to be you obviously live where you are and they live there and you might find that there's some really, really cool stuff you didn't know about it. And I think, you know, I'd like to see eventually the Aboriginal people become endearing to the Australian population because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all going to be here forever and a day. So it's just a matter of embracing Aboriginal culture is just as important as your own culture. It's about a two-culture system, you know, and I can't see why we can't embrace it together. We should be really celebrating the fact that we're in a country with the oldest continuing culture on the planet. That's phenomenal. And so NITV, following social media accounts like Indigenous X, where they have different Aboriginal person tweeting every week and writing blog posts, reading books like Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, and can do those together as a supervisor and registrar in practice that just gives increasing context to what you're learning from. And in general, as a principle in learning that, prioritising Aboriginal voices, so seeking out Aboriginal writers to do that. The adverse experiences that many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have had, so in the previous year, 37% will have had the death of a family member or friend. Trouble with police, 13%. The Aboriginal health workers that I work with, they have a conversation with their daughters and sons about how to handle the police when they're stopped, because it's going to happen. It's just struck me, I've never had to have that conversation with my teenage children, but just that's guaranteed to happen. So they need to have that conversation with them. Any stressor in the previous 12 months, 73%. So there's just very high levels of psychological distress in the patients that we're seeing that can sometimes show itself as sort of anger or difficulty engaging. There's some great questions. I went to a workshop on Aboriginal kinship a few years ago. Is kinship a significant factor in Aboriginal patients accessing or not accessing healthcare when different kins are in the waiting room or on staff? Yes. 
Very good question. Yeah, I can answer that. Particularly up in the Northern Territory, the kinship law is very, very strong. That is true. It's such a complex matrix setup that um, writes there that if uh, certain members that are not supposed to be in contact, they will not enter the a clinic because of the other person in the clinic. That is correct. Okay. So that kinship law is very, very strong in the Northern Territory. And if anyone wants to know about that, I'll give you a name. There's Mr. Richard Fijo. He's a Larrakia man. He's also a cultural officer with the Northern Territory General Practice Training Group up there. I'm sure if you contact them and have got an inquiry there, he would definitely more than give you the answer answers on that question. That is correct. Keith, what about outside of the Northern Territory? You're suggesting that it's not such an issue? Is it just vary around the country? Look, I, I know of it pretty much just around the Northern Territory region only. I can't comment on Western Australia because I haven't worked in Western Australia too much. And I suspect it is fairly strong up in the top end of the country. For around about Queensland, it varies. So I've worked up in around Mornington Island down there. There's, the kinship rule is not so strong there, but definitely in the Northern Territory it is. And probably Greed Island and all those places are definitely got a very strong kinship. Right. We've got some great crowdsourced information here. Fiona's letting us know that she's worked in practices with separate waiting rooms for different skins in the Pilbara. Yeah. And that Richie Fijo now works for Charles Darwin University as of about two months ago. And (laughs) he's being missed at NTGPE. I'm sure he is. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and, and I'm, I'm assuming that if that register would have already had that training from Richard and probably would verify my position. Yep. Shall I keep going with some questions? Yeah. We were quick to develop item numbers for telehealth with the COVID threat. Any comments on having item numbers for Indigenous consults that could help GPs with reasons for long consults? So there is quite a bit of information in the guide about item numbers, but perhaps Tim or Keith, you might like to add... Well, there are item numbers for telehealth. They're based for telehealth in terms of video conferencing and also telephone. There is also an item number for doing 715s internationally over the telephone. So we do have those item numbers available for our clients and we have been utilising them. In terms of going back to what Tim was saying earlier with the technology, it's very mixed because not everybody has a telephone (laughs) and not everybody has a computer, for example. So whilst we have access to those facilities, it is somewhat limited. Now, we've tried to implement those item numbers here in Walgut, but unfortunately, it hasn't worked out the way we would have liked it. But our clinic has never been closed. We've actually continued to maintain frontline services and we've had to because of the technology. Yeah. And I think the way the government expects it to work is that the money you get for doing the 715 subsidizes the longer consultations you do subsequently. You can also bill your nurse or a health worker who bill item numbers after that as well. And similarly, Indigenous Health Practice Incentive Payment provides a practice payment that's supposed to subsidize or really make up some of that gap. But I haven't seen any research that says whether it actually achieves that or not. It's a really good question. I haven't seen any appetite for actually Indigenous-specific MBS item numbers. The well-being incentives, the amounts have been doubled, which has actually been helpful during COVID, I think. But it's a good question. Watch this space. I guess the changes for COVID have demonstrated that they can make changes quickly if they need to, but I haven't seen an appetite for that. But watch this space. Question from Jackie uh, Roberts about just general protocols about men's health and women's health. So just in terms of cultural, most Aboriginal women aren't like to be seen by a male, particularly for women's health issues. It's very rare. Having said that, though, I find that if it's anything below the belly button, women definitely won't see it for. 
they're more likely to from the upper body part. But again, it's really varied and it depends on the geographic location in terms of the culture. So the best thing to ask an Aboriginal person, and I always say, even myself, I say, I understand you're an Aboriginal woman. Would you feel comfortable with me doing this as a man? I'm not finding an uncomfortable as an Aboriginal man asking this question, but I'm respecting you. I'm happy if you see a female doctor and understand that you may need to see them and I respect that. I think if you acknowledge there are differences and give the person the opportunity to answer the question, I think you earn a lot of respect from doing that and you give them a lot of empowerment. Fantastic. Just moving on from that about item numbers in this area, there's another question, it's sort of a comment question here. Aboriginal people can access extra services for physio and podiatry, but there's a bit of trouble about getting access to more psychological services when this is often one of the biggest needs. And then there's a mention of suicidality and eating disorders. So I think that's just really a bit of a comment. And The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And fantastic to get more psychology. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mental health is a problem. Geographic isolation is a problem. And often the solutions that people go to for apps and things, again, for the same reasons we've discussed, aren't appropriate. Mm. Exactly. How do you get feedback from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients regarding their interaction in a teaching space or a clinic and also from GPs and registrars and RTOs? Mm. I think this is a question we, about asking and feeling good about we asking. We found at Tharawal that our patients are really keen to be involved in teaching. Mm. They, they actually love it. We've had a lot of students and registrars around and being able to say to the patients about a student or a registrar, so what advice would you give them? And they've had often widespread experience in health services. And so they can often give really good advice about what's worked and what's not from their perspective. So I'd invite the patient to be involved in that because they often relish the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like what uh, Tim said. Yeah, yeah. There's a comment here which I think comes through in a few different comments as well. A lot of cultures have a culture that's rushed and busy, which is at odds really with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. What to do about that? It's very hard, of course. And going on from that was a comment regarding spending more time with the half a dozen or so Aboriginal patients, which creates some sort of tension in the time that it takes there compared to other patients. So that's really a point for discussion, I think. Yeah. If I can just quickly comment on that, I think being aware of that as being attention is the first step. It's not always going to be resolved and we make choices in our consultations about what we're going to do. And it's not going to be the same in each consultation. So sometimes you can put a bit more time early on to develop the relationship, which means that in future consultations, you can then say, well, we haven't got time to deal with all that. Today is going to be a bit more of a quicker one. And so it varies. And once you have a relationship, you have much more leeway to have those conversations with patients. I have a rule that there are two goals and only two goals in every consultation we do. The first one is to make sure that people don't drop dead in the car park. If they've got hematemesis, if they've got central crossing chest pain, you sort of have to manage that. But the second is give them a reason to come back. Because as long as people are still coming back, you can still work with them. And so you can think of it as a consultation that lasts two years, just chopped up into 15 or 30 minute blocks, as opposed to single long consultations. And so often you can make intentional decisions in your consultations about what you're going to do. I'm going to choose to run late today because it's important. I'm actually going to curtail this one today because I've got lots of people waiting for me now. And it's always a balance and it's always going to be difficult that. 
Yeah, and I'd like to add the fact that patients' expectations may be a little bit different to your expectation because whilst they might have come in for a skin rash or something that's very manageable and that's all they want done and you look at their results and you're saying and you've got a heartfelt sink that these things are not followed up and your priorities are very different to theirs. And I think the main game is not to pressure them on that but to try and engage them so you can actually achieve that outcome getting that what your priorities are under control as well. And it's trying to work together to try and encourage them to do that as well. But whatever the message you leave, particularly with Aboriginal people, and I will say this and I re-emphasise this, when you treat an Indigenous person, you're actually treating the community because you can actually destroy your medical career in a community is the way you respond because just the word gets around really quickly. So again, it's just a spot check. Just be very empathetic. I'm not saying you should be disrespected as a person. You should treat everybody with respect. Just be mindful that they often will test you out. And I've seen kids come in and see me first before the adults come in. And you wonder what that consult was all about. But it was actually, they were scouting to see what you're like. So they do test, right? So yeah. Terrific. Just for everyone's information, there's some very juicy questions coming up. It's good to be aware of the health indicators of people. It helps to plan their care, but I'm just wondering if it won't amount to being stereotypical or prejudiced to treat Indigenous people differently from others, especially in the consultation room. Mm. It's a really good question, that, because I think we do have to avoid being stereotypical. So all of those statistics are spread over community, and you can't assume that any one individual we see is in any of those income brackets or that particular housing or anything. So we need to get all our information from the patient in front of us. We don't treat all our patients the same anyway. We never do. We treat them according to what they need and how they want to be treated. And so I think we should avoid stereotyping. But for me, the knowledge of what the background and experiences is of my patients, including my Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients, and that that will be very different to my life experience as a middle-aged heterosexual white male earning a decent income. And so being aware that my views and my experiences will be different And so I need to treat my patient on the basis of what their experiences will have been, not my assumptions. Otherwise, I end up treating myself, really, and treating people as if they are me and as if they are my cultural background. We should be treating people differently according to what they need. And I think that's what we do do. Terrific. There's another one here. Another limitation to telehealth with Aboriginal people is hearing loss Mm. and language. That's a great comment. Thank you. It's really important. Yes. Can you comment about the perception of time, or this is a very big question, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures? You mean time, like Koori time, or is... I think that's what the question is about, Koori time as opposed to white people's time. I'm not sure what that means, that Koori time. I think if Aboriginal people, they're running late, is because they don't keep calendars, they don't keep diaries, they often miss their appointments it's because, you know, you can't send an SMS message to remind them and a whole bunch of things. So I'm not sure whether that comes from that Koori time. I know if we've got clients, we try to reduce the risk they're going to miss the appointments mainly because we either contact them day four, send scouts out to let them know, and that always does the job. I've heard of it, and it's been thrown at me once before, but I just don't understand why that would be any different. Very good question here. What if an Aboriginal patient needs a psychologist? Are there psychologists for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are very culturally appropriate? I presume that's going to vary across the whole of Australia, but there will be some. It's hard. I mean, and mental health is a big issue, not only just for Aboriginal people, it's for the general Australian population. It's one of our biggest mm-hmm. issues in the country by far. And access to services even gets worse as you get out. We're only in, in quite remote areas. 
And I think it's hard. Finding good psychologists that you actually gel with generally is also very difficult as well. So it's one of those very complex areas that Tim might be able to add a bit. Yeah, the starting point is where counsellor is going to be my proxy for psychologist on this and cultural appropriateness of service is quite high for people not seeing a psychologist or counsellor. There's a very good active organisation of Indigenous psychologists, and I don't think there's a huge number of Indigenous psychologists. Psychologists are aware of those issues. I think it's going to be knowing your local referral network and getting feedback from your patients about whether they appreciated seeing that particular psychologist. Where I am, we work with a fantastic social emotional wellbeing team that includes a mental health nurse practitioner, drug and alcohol worker, psychologists who are non-Indigenous, and a counsellor. So I think the crucial thing thing is getting a psychologist who is good with trauma and good at engaging different sorts of people, knowing your own referral networks and getting feedback from the patient about how comfortable they were there. And actually, I'd probably add that. So if you're on mainstream general practice, there's no reason why you can't refer to an Aboriginal community controlled health service. All you need to do is do the referral and an EPC referral, obviously, because it's obviously going to pay for the service. But from my point of view, I don't see that any difference. There are a lot of Aboriginal people that do not see doctors that certainly have capacity to access those services. So by all means, please contact your local Aboriginal medical service and see whether that's feasible where you are. And I think it also improves access to the clientele as well. Someone asking about a resource on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heroes, I would go to, I think, Larissa Berent. There's a little yellow black book which has some of those stories in, and that's a really good resource to use. There's a few books like that. Patients didn't identify as Aboriginal at the reception desk, then they're not, but should I ask again? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons is it's pretty impersonal <laughs> right at the front desk. Somebody's asking that question. Uh, and a lot of Aboriginal people you know, may not want to identify openly. There are a lot of people, and I think we've seen that in recent years with the census, we've actually seen an increase in people actually identifying as Aboriginal people because they feel comfortable. They want to identify, but not be very open about it. And I think all the privacy in the world, given my opportunity to at least ask the question, should be done in the consultation room again. Just reiterate, I think it's important. And most people are very honest, I think, generally about this question. So I think you should ask it and should not be frightened about it. Yeah, I agree. It's a skill that we all need. What is culturally normal grieving versus a mental health illness? How do I discuss and manage this in general practice? Well, this is a very difficult one. Sorry business, what we call sorry business, occurs pretty much regularly. And most about every community has sorry business. There's a constant dealing with that grieving, you know, because we, we're connected. And I think the fact that we actually grieve together is actually somewhat protective in a little way and that we have the opportunity to deal with some of this stuff in sorry business. I think grief is family orientated generally around the family, not the extended family. Even though there's a loss, it's very similar to what occurred probably in mainstream. But I think we have to be mindful. People are impacted in their lives and even if they're not extended family, they may be very close because of circumstances. They may have been very close to those individuals that probably lived with them and been supported by them in the past. So the connection is very strong. So I think you have to treat the patient and the symptoms and what they're presenting with and trying to work out whether this is actually a grief or whether something underlying as a mental health issue. Yeah. I think every time I've had to deal with this, I've had invaluable help from an Aboriginal health worker who's guided me around that. Mm, fantastic. Yeah. I work in a metro suburb. I don't have many Aboriginal patients. Why should I focus on this topic? We did talk about that earlier as well. That's a good question. So again, I would ask your clientele because it's a misnomer. There are quite a lot of Aboriginal people living in regional and major centres. As you look at the statistics, okay, now almost 50% of the population live from Sydney right up to the Queensland border. That's 50% of 3%. So there's a lot of people there. I think it's a misnomer that Aboriginal people don't live in the city. So by all means, please ask. You are Aboriginal because I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. Yeah. 
I thought Aboriginal people use their own health services like Aboriginal Medical Service. Yeah, we cover this a bit in the guide, actually. Keith, you had a good stab at answering that with facts. Yep. Yeah, look, I think it's just important. Your doctor is your individual choice. We are individuals, and as Aboriginal people, we choose where we go and see our doctors. Now, I'll give you an example. In Armidale, where I've got a big family up there, 60% of the population saw a non-Indigenous doctor who they've had trust and respect for all the years, and they tried to set a medical service up there. And even when the medical service was established in Armidale, most of their patients stay with their trusted GP. It comes down to developing a relationship with the individuals and that respect comes over time. So it's like anything we do. Your patients will respect you regardless of what's going on. There are circumstances why some patients don't come to an Aboriginal medical service, maybe because if it's a female issue, there may not be female doctors on site and so they choose to do their women's health services elsewhere. <laughs> Any other patients, they'll pick and choose. There is quite often, because we're related, we've got families working as Aboriginal health workers and a lot of the families don't like the confidentiality being open and there's always a risk of that in Aboriginal communities. And for those who are registrars that are working for Aboriginal community control, please consider that when you actually engage in some Aboriginal health workers or ask the patient before you actually speak to some of these guys because they're very sensitive about that. And there's a whole myriad of other things like distance to Aboriginal medical service. So again, treating Aboriginal people in and general practice in the mainstream general practice is very important. And I think there's a lot of people that actually utilise those services. Yeah. Bottom line for me is Aboriginal people should be able to access any health service in Australia confident that they'll get good service. Yeah, and they're also very transient too, by the way. Some Aboriginal people can be very transient. I've seen an Aboriginal person in Kempsey Taree, the same person, mind you, in Armidale. So they can be transient around. So yeah, That's right. And I've made healthcare plans for Aboriginal patients in the past. They have not been followed. Running is health just not a priority. I'd like to be more helpful. Am I missing something here? For me, the context that we were talking about is the reason when people haven't got the money or the resources with the housing or the internet access, people end up having a lot of other priorities, like appointments with Centrelink, with job network providers that actually stop them doing the things on the health plan. Hmm. And exactly right. And again, like I'll give you an example up here in Wagat. We've got a population up there. There's no work up here because of the drought. So a lot of people are on Newstart, for example. And I had a client come in the other day who has diabetes and had carpal tunnel. So I applied for her to get some braces just to treat her. They only $25 at the local pharmacy. She was knocked back for her funding arrangements with the local funding body because she had diabetes. She could actually be eligible for it. But unfortunately, because she's on Newstart, she couldn't afford the $50. In other words, she was going to be in pain waiting to see a surgeon down in Dubbo on a waiting list and couldn't afford to get these wrist braces because she's trying to feed herself because she's going on Newstart. These are real stories. Um, these things happen every day. And so you're often confronted with those complexities of trying to treat a lot of these guys. So it's not just about the actual chronic disease. When you see the individuals, you're often trying to do the social issues. Some of them don't even turn up with a Medicare card trying to sort some of those issues out. And I think that's the big complexity of it all. We've got you know, fundamental issues. And again, if you ask the patient, they'll tell you. Absolutely. Mm. I mentioned to one of my patients that her risk of heart disease was high because she was Aboriginal. And I got the impression she was upset that I said this. Maybe I should not have said this. Hmm. Yeah, my take on this is that we use being Aboriginal as a marker of exposure to all those other things we've talked about. Mm -hmm. So if you're Aboriginal, you're more likely to have had stressful things happen. You're more likely to be in the low income brackets. You're more likely to have been in a family who's experienced stolen generations. All of those things are what put you at risk of all the different diseases. Actually being Aboriginal and connected to culture is protective. And so I think we need to be careful that it's the pathology, the disease that we're treating is not being 
being Aboriginal, but what that means in terms of life experience is what creates the increased risk of disease. So I think what you were saying to the patient may have been taken that a core part of your identity is what makes you sick. And actually, it's the life experiences that you've had that have brought you to this place make you more likely to have heart disease. But we often talk about that in medicine as if it's being Aboriginal that gives you heart disease, but it's actually the experiences that you've gone through that do that. Just the terminology between Indigenous and Aboriginal, just to give some difference. Some Aboriginal people will be offended if you call them Indigenous, mainly because if you're born in Australia, you're Indigenous, okay? So they prefer to be called Aboriginal, all right? So just be mindful, you use the language, just try and use Aboriginal rather than Indigenous, because sometimes I've been challenged on that one as well, and I'm Indigenous and Aboriginal. Uh, Next question, is there an easy way to engage with my local Aboriginal community? And we talked a bit about sort of engaging with local events and meeting people. And your patients will often be a guide to who to get to know as well. Councils and land councils will often have Aboriginal officers in them as well. Yeah, national parks run cultural groups and there's a whole bunch of opportunities out there. It's just a matter of exploring your local community. And again, I utilise the radios and stuff. And they're often a really good source of events that will be coming up as well. There's one last question here, which is, I'm struggling to fully understand the word sorry business. What does this imply? Is this a translation of an Aboriginal word? If so, then what is the word that is understood across all Aboriginal cultures? This will not be a simple answer, but thank you. All questions are welcome. Well, sorry business is basically death, so it's funeral, basically. So if you're dealing with sorry business, you're dealing with all the components of that, basically. We just, rather than saying funeral, it's dealing with the loss of extended family. And it's just a general word that we use. Yep. There is one final question, which I just want to touch on. How do you manage your own stress in dealing with so much patient distress? I think it's a really, really important one to discuss with registrars. I think we have to be quite intentional about it in looking out for each other in practice and checking on each other that we're going okay. And then having a full life outside medicine with friends and family and things we love doing. Thank you so much, Keith and Tim. It's just incredible. There's high participation. I really want to thank you all for taking the time out. Very much appreciated. See you guys. Thank you very much. Good night. Stay well. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you hadn't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.